Welcome everybody to the University of Applied Research and Development. I'm Craig and I'm delighted to have with us Dr. Ed Dorb, who is the Emotions Doctor. We're excited to have you with us, Ed. Thank you, Craig, for having me. Looking forward to it. Um, you have your PhD in clinical psychology and you work with a range of different people. Why don't you tell us about what you do now as the Emotions Doctor? Well, yes, I do have my PhD. And I'm retired after 32 years working with juveniles within the California Youth Authority. These are young women who have been or are locked up in California for serious crimes and with the staff. And now I'm using what I learned from those experiences as an author. I've got two best-selling books on Amazon, and I also have a blog that I write. And what I found out while I was working with them is the language that I have to talk to these young women about emotions was out of graduate school. And what I had to say to them didn't match their often less than high school education. So I had to come up with a way that could explain to these young women what emotions were and how to relate to their emotions. And I came up with the emotions as tools model in order to do that. And I also had to use the same model in order to deal with jaded staff, correctional staff, who looked at their emotions and said, I don't want to deal with this stuff. They're messy. You can't control them. You can't do anything with them. So I needed to help the staff understand that emotions are just tools, like the batons they learned how to use. I had to help the young women understand that the emotions are just tools. It isn't something that they need to be afraid of. They need to learn how to master them. So I came up with the emotions as tools model and mastering emotions. And that's what I write about now in, on my blog and also in my books. Can we dig a little bit deeper into the emotions as tools model and, and how we would use those? Yes, we can. Here's how the emotions as tools model works. In, in our culture in America and probably where you are as well, we don't deal well with emotions. And the reason we don't is because we have anger and anger gets a bad name because people do dumb things when they're angry. We don't deal with anxiety because it often hurts and it's uncomfortable. And so what we tend to do is to move, try and move away from our emotions. And if you understand that emotions are just tools, they're tools like a, a remote control or your cell phone, that's all they are is tools. And you need to learn how to master them. Each emotion has a particular message. When you learn what the message is, you can then learn how to use that message to improve your life and your relationships. The message of anxiety is, anxiety is a future-based emotion, which says there may be a threat and that threat may harm me. Well, the emphasis here is on may, because when you get anxious, the question becomes, wait a minute, how real is the threat? And can I survive it if it happens? And if the answer to that is yes, then you use the energy of your anxiety as what's called eustress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, -E in order to motivate you to take the action you need to take. In my student's case, it would be, I need to use my anxiety about the upcoming exam in order to study. Now, you mentioned that you work with people who are in the oil industry. Well, they use their anxiety all the time, my guess is. Now, I'm no expert on that industry, but correct me if I'm wrong, Craig. They go into that situation, they've been prepared for, and they've been trained, 
and they use their anxiety saying, you know, I need to do this, this, and this, and I need to check all the boxes because if I don't, something bad can happen. That's using anxiety as you stress in order to accomplish the things you need to do and avoid having not avoid accidents happening. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. It does make sense. And that uh, using that anxiety and that, that um, emotional energy to get through that situation. How do we deal with it after the situation is over when those emotions might be continuing or inside us? Okay, that's also a very good question. After the incident is over, then what you've got going is adrenaline. And the adrenaline, it's almost like when you're in a car and you're driving a car and you put your foot on the brake, the car doesn't stop. It takes time for that car to stop. And it's the same thing when you're dealing with emotions. You go through the situation, the situation is over, and now you have the residue from that emotion, which is still there. So now you have to ask yourself, what is going on? What am I feeling? I'm feeling anxious. Well, wait a minute, the situation's over. So now what I need to do is I need to say, yes, I'm anxious, that's validating the emotion, and then just let it run itself out, unless there's something else that's going on. But in most cases, there isn't. So saying, oh my goodness, you know, I've dealt with this crisis and I'm still anxious. What's wrong? Well, it may be nothing. It's just the residual from that, anx from that anxiety. Because what happens in the emotional cycle is we're constantly on the alert and we scan our environment for, for basically threat. And we're hardwired to do that. And when we perceive threat, the amygdala kicks in and prepares us to deal with that threat. That's an automatic response. We have no control over that, nor would we want to if we're facing a real threat. But at the same time, a slower message goes to the cerebral cortex. That's the thinking part of our brain, which enables us to say, what's the nature of the threat? Well, after the incident is over, your amygdala probably is still going and you need to use the cerebral cortex, the thinking part, to assess what's going on. Now, my guess is because I've worked with police and I've worked with folks who deal with suicidal individuals, and after the event, what we do is we do a post-event analysis to see what went wrong, how did we handle it? Well, part of that is when the emotion is still going, the cerebral cortex kicks in and says, okay, wait a minute, what's going on? What did I do? Where I'm at? And you assess where you are and then the emotion can run itself out. Now, those types of situations where there is a, a visible threat, a very physical threat for the oneself mm -hmm. or for other people, that's quite a high pressure. You can see the threat. Whereas in the environment now, particularly with students in schools and in communities where they're working from home, living from home, particularly for students, there is an uncertainty. There's not a physical threat, a physical danger, but there's an uncertainty. There's no, not the consistency of a program, education, classes, interaction, mm -hmm. community, but there seems to be a buildup of stress, the rise in teenage suicides, the rise in depression, the rise in mental health issues. Is mm -hmm. it the same sort of approach that one should use in this type of situation as in a, a, a threat situation? Yeah, it is, and here's why. Your brain, our brain, cannot tell the difference between a real threat and a threat which we just imagine. 
And you can see that if you think of a situation, think of um, something that, that happened to you in, in the past, and you will get the same feeling that you had when you were going through it because the brain doesn't distinguish. So for your students, what they need to understand is let me give you a definition of stress. Stress is where expectations, what you think should happen, is not the same as reality, which is what is happening. And one of the ways to deal with stress is to bring those two into, to bring them, to align them. And you can do that either by saying, okay, am I not understanding what's happening with reality? What do I need to change there? Or are my expectations unrealistic? In other words, when I say to myself, this is what should be happening. Well, yeah, but it's not. So what's the reason that it's not? Is there something that you're not doing? Is there something that you're not preparing for? Is there something that you, some action that you need to take? And when you do that, then your stress levels should drop. And for your students in, the, in the, this situation that we've got now where, where there is so much uncertainty, uncertainty is their new reality. And just because it's uncertain doesn't mean that you cannot impact it. And that's where students will go off the rails. Oh my goodness, what am I gonna do if I can't get my classes, if I can't do that, if I can't? You need to make some plans. You need to make some plans for what you have control over. And then you need to look at what you can't necessarily impact and see if it happens, can you survive it? Or are you missing something that you might be able to do? Because if, if something's happening and you don't have any control over it, it's gonna happen whether you do anything or not. Now I'm not trying to be glib here, but there are some situations where you don't have any control. The university may not open up, the university may open up, your class may not be available. And if you understand that in that situation, you're just going to have to adjust, now your reality is, I will adjust to whatever life brings me. When it happens and I have some, in, some insight into it, I will make the adjustment. And because I can't control it, I'm not going to allow myself to go off the deep end and worry about it. What you're changing there is your expectation. The expectation is, oh, excuse me, the reality is I can't change this right now. The expectation is I will deal with it when it comes up. And when you're when your stress level lowers, you're in a better position to deal with it. There's a, it's called the Yerkes-Dotson Law, Y-R-K-E-S-D-O-D-S-O-N, the Yerkes-Dotson Law. And what it says is it's an inverse curve. And what it says is when your level of arousal goes up too high, your effectiveness goes down. And the importance of the Yerkes-Dotson is you don't have to get yourself from a arousal level of 10 to an arousal level of one. All you may need to do is get yourself from an arousal level of 10 to an arousal level of eight. You don't need to make your anxiety go away. You just need to lower your arousal enough so that the thinking part of your brain can kick in and you can now do an assessment. Dr. Reed, I think that that's, that's quite an epiphany, actually, for people to understand that we don't have to try to get to zero and be completely calm in a wonderful, peace-loving state. We just need to recognize, we just need exactly. to lower it. Exactly. 
And I, and I don't know what that is for each individual. For some, it's just going to be taking a deep breath. For others, it may be taking a deep breath and making some lists, writing down some plans. That's what the individual has to decide. But it's important for them to keep in mind, I don't need to get to Kumbaya in order to be effective. I just need to get to, I'm a little more relaxed. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Dr. Ed, I think it'd be really interesting for us to know what got you so interested and emotions and helping people deal with it. <laughs> well, let me give you the short version. When I was an intern, I did a, I, I went to this friend of my parents who was the director of a program for, for treating alcoholics. And I said to him, can I sit in on, on this group? And he said, no. I said, well, why not? He said, because I don't want you to sit on it, but what you can do is you can be a participant observer. And my thought was, piece of cake. I'm a graduate student. I'm doing my internship. I'm almost to my PhD. I can deal with whatever this group throws at me. It took these folks six months to tell me that they thought I was a non-drinking alcoholic. And what I mean by that is they said to me, we in this group avoid our feelings by drinking. You, Dr. Dobby, avoid your feelings with your books. Same idea, different process. And that's what got me interested in emotions because in my family, emotions weren't dealt with. And I just assumed if I can deal with it going into my head, I'm fine. No, I wasn't. And so I took that lesson and I applied it when I started working with these young women. And then now that I'm retired, when I start doing my blog entries and that kind of thing. But that's how I got interested in emotions. It was a very strange way to do it, but that's how I got there. <laughs> That's amazing. Do you have a copy of one of your books sitting close by you that you could show us? Or can you tell us about no. your books? No, I really don't because I say I'm, I'm up here uh, visiting my, my son and, and grandson. But yes, there's a way to access my books. They're on Amazon. And the first one is Emotions as Tools, Control Your Life, Not Your Feelings. And the second one is Beyond Anger Management, Master Your Anger as a Strategic Tool. And the other thing is they can go to my blog, which is the emotionsdoctor.emotionsdoctor.com, and they can download the first chapters of the anger book, and um, they can gain access to, I believe it's the introduction of the emotions book as well. And on that blog, I, I would suggest to, to your listeners, when they go to that blog, they can go to the upper right-hand corner of the homepage, and if there's an index tab, when they press on the index tab, it will take them to a PDF, and that PDF, when they open it, lists all of my, my posts by title, by date, and by category. So if they're interested in learning something about anxiety, they can pull up anxiety, and it'll, take, it'll tell them where to get it, what month, and they can go over to the archives page. They can learn about anxiety, they can learn about anger, they can learn about different emotions, they can learn about the power of words. There's a whole bunch of stuff on there, and it's totally free. I think that would be a fantastic resource. What I'd love to do with, with the video in the show notes is actually have the links to all of those things for everybody. Could you tell us a little bit about anger? Okay. 
That'd be great. And why you wrote the book about anger. I wrote the book about anger because I noticed that I was reading a lot about anger management and controlling anger. And it frustrated me because when you go through anger management programs, I've, I've asked people and what they told me was they don't really work because they teach me to control. And once I get out of the group, the, I, I can't control it because I'm in situations. I also got frustrated because I was looking at the news and I saw celebrities saying, you know, I beat up my girlfriend because I was angry. And so they were blaming the anger. And I wanted to write a book which is easy to understand and straightforward, which explained some of the problems with that approach. There are many myths about anger, and one is that my anger controls me. It doesn't. The, I talked earlier about the, the emotional mastery cycle where we, we subconsciously react to the perception of threat. Well, that part we can't control. But the anger does not make us determine what we're going to do when we're angry. So my the purpose of my book was to explain that anger is just an emotion. It's a tool that you need to have and you need to learn how to use because there are going to be times when you're legitimately angry. Uh, as an example, I, I went on LinkedIn a few years back and I went to a woman's forum and I asked them this question. When you as a woman express anger in a, an appropriate setting, what happens? 2,000 women basically told me I can't express anger because when they do, I get demeaned, I get labeled, I get put down. So for these women, in my book, I basically explain you need to use your anger, but you need to approach your situations indirectly from a project management point of view. So the book basically says is anger is important. It's a valid tool. You need to learn how to master it. And anger mastery involves understanding your perception of threat making a decision about whether or not the threat is real, and then using the energy of your anger in order to bring about a solution and the elimination of that threat. That's what got me into writing about anger. I saw that there was so much misinformation out there and I tried to set it straight. It's fantastic. I think we need to include that into our courses as people move through levels of leadership because we're gonna get mm -hmm. angry when we're working with people. Um, just in the few minutes that we have left, Dr. Ed, I'd love for you to share your thoughts on aspiring leaders and as people are thinking about moving to the next level of responsibility in their careers, what are some learnings and experiences that you would encourage them to have to be prepared with their emotions? That's a really good question. And what I would suggest to your future leaders is this. If they understand that emotions are tools when they deal with their people, their subordinates, their subordinates are going to show emotions, whether it's anger, whether it's anxiety, whatever it happens to be. And if they understand that emotions are just tools, then they, can, they have a sense of what they're going to have to do when they're working with their subordinates to help those folks get past what's going on so they can focus on the task at hand. They can learn how to approach, the, for example, if I have a, um, I, when I was a, a senior psychologist, I had a psychologist that I was working with who was constantly angry. Now, I was advised by my superiors, just tell the person, look, they need to get over it and they need to move on. That is dumb advice. It's dumb advice because this man's anger was telling me he perceived a threat. So then I had, I approached him in terms of, What's the nature of the threat? So tell me, Dr. Smith, 
what is it that you see going on that you're so angry about? And how can I help? And then once he, once he suggested to me that he saw me as a threat because of how I was approaching him, I was able to make an adjustment accordingly. But I validated his anger because he, he had a right to his anger. Now, was it an appropriate anger? Well, I don't know because it was his anger, but it certainly was valid again because that's how he perceived it. So if I understand how my subordinates are perceiving me or the situation, and I learn that by looking at the emotions that they're expressing, it gives me an avenue of intervention in order to approach them and help them get past it. Does that make sense? It does, that's great, that's a great example. I'm quite surprised that we would say to a psychologist, just get over it. This was 30 years ago. <laughs> I could tell you other things they told me to do that were inappropriate as well, but that's for another broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Ed, the emotions doctor, I really want to thank you for your time. Thank you for freely mm -hmm. giving us such wisdom to share. So thank you so much. Um, stay safe and stay well. All right. I appreciate that. Thank you for having me, Craig. Best to you too as well.